millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's the first week of August 2023, and I am out at Pevensey Marshes. This low-lying area of grassland stretches for over 3,000 500 hectares and the bit I'm on is owned by the National Trust. While much of the Pevensey Marshes has been drained for agriculture, making it now home to sheep and cattle, it's still a thriving habitat for hundreds of other species, including birds like lapwings and redshanks. Interestingly, Part of the marshes includes an area that used to be known as North Eye Islands, where there used to be a medieval village called North Eye. We know that once North Eye was a little port on a winding river which led inland as far as the Sussex town of Hailsham. North Eye had its own salt works and a flint-based church dedicated to St James but all that is long gone and it's not an island at all anymore. The village was abandoned around the year 1400, following first an outbreak of plague, then a colossal wave of storms which battered the Sussex coast, silting up the river, making the village more or less unlivable. Today, about 3% of England is classed as marshlands, but this number used to be much much higher. Nobody knows quite how high, but the county we're talking about today once had an additional 15,000 square miles or 40,000 square kilometres of Fenland that has now been drained. According to estimates by the Environment Agency, it's believed that by the end of the century, climate change will mean there won't be any fens left in southern England at all, which is wild to think about, not least because wetlands are important to England's history. Famously, Alfred the Great hid in them when Wessex was overrun, returning later to forge the nation. 
And that's just one incident in a long tradition of legendary English rebels hiding in marshes to evade their enemies. With this thought in mind, come out of your hiding place in the bulrushes and gather close around the three ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch, Alana Conlon. Hello! You're smelling a little swampy today, Martin. Uh, well, thank you, darling. I've been out <laughs> squishing and squashing through bogs, but, you know... Promise I'll shower later. Wonderful. (laughs) For now, though, we should start by thanking our new supporters on Patreon. Yes, thank you to our newest Patreon supporters, Sam, Phil, Amy, Elizabeth and Andrew. All hail Phil, king of Patreon. All hail Amy, king of Patreon. All hail Elizabeth, king of Patreon. All hail Andrew, king of Patreon. All hail Sam, king of Patreon. Now, I really hope that everyone in our Patreon community has been enjoying this month's newsletter and that you'll enjoy this month's special Patreon-exclusive episode, which will be released on Thursday. Our very wonderful exploration of the very haunted (laughs) Screaming Woods at Pluckley. Yeah, warning in advance, it's a spooky place. We properly freaked ourselves out walking (laughs) around it. And if you'd like additional bonus content, including special episodes, our stories as text versions, all of our episodes, episodes ad-free and other goodies like the newsletter, then do please sign up for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Also, we should mention that as it's August, we now have an all new three ravens film club film. This month, we're encouraging everyone to watch a much more modern movie, (laughs) 2022's You Won't Be Alone, which is a folk horror all about witches in 19th century Macedonia. I'm really excited about this one. I've been wanting to see it for ages. As always, please send us your own folk tales or folk-inspired bits of trivia to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com for inclusion in our next listener episode. Yes, yes. And that's the same place to also send your own original artwork for our new card design competition. Yes, please send us your own artwork that you think will look nice on the front of a greetings card inspired by the folklore of winter. And at the end of our second series, we'll pick our favourite three to turn into greetings cards to sell through our online shop at threeravenspodcast ravenspodcast.com forward slash shop. Yes, and we've already had some beautiful entries, so thank you for those. Very exciting. Have, yeah. And thank you to those people who've already ordered cards from the first contest. They're in the post. Yes. Um, and I can confirm they're very beautiful. They we, they've come out so nicely and we are loving those. We are indeed. Now, we're releasing this episode on Monday, the 7th of August, which, like some Mondays, isn't a particularly noteworthy day for Saints this or Obscure Festivals. <laughs> sometimes doesn't it (laughs) not every week can be a winner so we've got another nothing day well i thought it might actually be a good time to talk about 
dog days. Now, I'm assuming that you mean days when you just want to be covered in puppies. <laughs> or just take the lead out and go on long walks with your favourite pooch. Not quite. Or days when you want to dress up like a dog and wag your tail. <laughs> no, not that either. No, I'm talking about the strange period of celestial time we are currently in, prompted by the heliacal rising of the star system Sirius. Oh, tell me more. Now, I I'm, was being facetious because I know that Shakespeare <laughs> references dog days. Yes. The dog Days now reign yeah. Henry VIII. Yeah, that's right. And John Webster mentions them in The Duchess of Malfi. Charles Dickens does more than once, amongst other writers throughout history. And this is because the concept of dog days have their roots in the most ancient of texts, feeding right the way through almost every cultural tradition in existence. Blimey, why is that? Well, because basically Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky and when it rises at this time of year... Things get weird. So Sirius is Canis Major, isn't it? Which is also called the Dog Star. Precisely. So the ancient Greeks called it Qon, and the other name the Greeks gave it was Syros, meaning scorcher. Searing, I think, <laughs> nice. is, is a related term. Um, it was thought to be a precursor to a period of bad weather, <laughs> collective madness and catastrophe, which, when you look at the wildfires in Europe right now, does kind of make you wonder. Yes, it does feel relevant. So I'm guessing it it wasn't just the Greeks that believed this. No, not by any means. So the ancient Egyptians saw Sirius's arrival as the precursor of the annual Nile floods. Similar mythology about bad luck and madness exists in Middle Eastern, Indian and Far Eastern cultures. And throughout Europe, during the Middle Ages, when humorism was the primary force of medicine, it was believed that bloodletting during the dog days was extremely bad for you. Well, that's probably right. I mean, I think that bloodletting in general is a bad idea, <laughs> yeah, especially yeah, my enough. blood. Uh, but what do we do about this dog days problem if if not bleed one another dry? <laughs> well, there's actually not much we can do, really. We're just sort of meant to wait them out. Oh, great. That's useful. And uh, I believe Mercury is going to be in retrograde this month as well. So we are in for a party. <laughs> and when, when uh, did the dog days? finish. <laughs> well, this year they started on Monday the 3rd of July and they will end this Friday the 11th of August. Oh, that's alright then. So that means anything bad that happened in that whole period we can absolutely blame on otherwise unrelated occurrences in deep space. Yes. Uh, although from Friday, of course, we're once again going to have to take responsibility for everything all over again, and that's a bit of a drag. At least we can blame Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we could also get all of our madness and bad luck out of the way this week. Oh, that sounds great. Um, now, speaking of madness and bad luck, shall we give the county criers <laughs> a good prod and have them ring us into Cambridgeshire? Definitely. Now, listen up, you. Dog days are associated with lethargy and madness, but if you all don't get up and take your underpants off your heads right this minute, I'm going to come over there and let some blood, no matter what Hippocrates says. Cambridgeshire is located in the east of England and is bordered by Lincolnshire to the north, Norfolk to the northeast, Suffolk to the east, Essex and Hertfordshire to the south, and Bedfordshire and Northamptonshire to the west. So another landlocked one. Absolutely. As always, there's a map showing its precise location on the blog at threeravenspodcast.com forward slash blog, but... Eleanor, do you remember an episode or two ago when we talked about Northamptonshire being the source of the River Nene? Yes. 
Well, the Neen runs through Cambridgeshire. In fact, to get some early folklore in, there is a legendary mere called Whittlesea, which used to stretch for 3,000 acres as fed by the Neen. It was drained several times from the 17th century onwards, but kept flooding, and it said hurricanes used to rise up out of the mere. I'm not sure what the science of that is, no, but it sounds right. very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, now Whittlesea last flooded itself in 1862, and since then the area has been farmland, but it wasn't until this last massive effort to finally drain Whittlesea that the engineers found an ancient sword, an ancient silver thurib, also an incense burner basically, an incense boat, and several other artefacts, including a silver ram's head. Now, some of the items have subsequently gone missing, but the thurible and incense boat are now on display at the British Museum. Wow. Cool, isn't it? Yeah, let's go and see them. Yeah, let's. Now, one of the things Cambridgeshire is most famous for is the fens, which are these massive expanses of low-lying marshland that dominated the northeast of the county for the longest time. Holm Fen is actually the lowest point in England, standing at nine feet below sea level. And really interestingly, Flag Fen near Peterborough is a Bronze Age site, very famous. People theorise it was a religious site dating from approximately 3,500 years ago. Wow, I knew about Peterborough Cathedral, but Flag Fen sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. Now, people might have seen pictures of this, and again, I'll pop some on the blog, but in 1982, Archaeologists found an ancient wooden causeway there, made up of over 60,000 timbers, arranged in five mysterious but highly accurate regimented rows. None of the wood used is from the area, making it a bit like Stonehenge, where, of course, the stone was brought from the Preseli Mountains in Wales. But, again... Flag then, loads of artefacts were found submerged under the water and peat bogs, including ancient boats, broken and bent daggers, jewellery, all sorts of stuff, leading some archaeologists to call the marshes of Flag Fen the land of the dead. The land of the dead. Yep. One of the coolest parts of it is called Must Farm, where there's this quarry that's close to Whittlesea, where they found Bronze Age dwellings in an incredible state of preservation, leading to Must Farm being known as Britain's Pompeii. Wow. So leaving the elephant in the room just stood there for a minute. Yeah. I've been reading quite a lot about Mary the First at the moment. Yes. And so I really feel like we need to give Peterborough a special shout out. Okay, so Peterborough is this bizarrely underdiscussed place in England today, probably because Cambridge itself steals so much of the limelight. But holy moly, Peterborough Cathedral is insane. Oh, it's wild. I mean, I love it because it's a resting place of both Catherine of Aragon and Mary, Queen of Scots. So for that alone, it's a bit of a mecca. But the look of the cathedral is completely unique. You are so right. There is literally no other cathedral in the world that's like it, in fact. It's built in the early English Gothic style with three enormous arches in its front facade. It used to be an Anglo-Saxon church called the Meadsham Steed. And you can still see the Dark Age header stone there. Oh, it's a stunner. Oh, as is Ely Cathedral, actually. Yes, so between Ely Cathedral, Peterborough Cathedral and Durham Cathedral, you have this kind of insane trinity of 12th century architecture with Ely, which is also, as you say, 
unbelievably beautiful. Of course, being on the site of a 7th century abbey on an island named literally because the area was famous for people catching eels. <laughs> I mean, don't like eels, but love that it's named after them. <laughs> I mean, technically, Ely Cathedral is actually called the Cathedral Church of the Holy and Undivided Trinity. Yeah, right. There's eels there. It's totally an Ely Cathedral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, all this makes me wonder if Cambridgeshire has similar legends to County Durham, which we uh, did in episode four, yes. with these eel-like worms hatching from the fen waters. And like Cumberland too. And yes, you'll be happy to hear it does. Happy is the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> so Wormwood Hill oh, no. near Stapleford in Cambridgeshire was supposedly a site where worms used to breed and oh, hide in no. the woods. <laughs> I don't like them when they're breeding and hiding in the woods. There's also, quite funnily, a secessionary organisation in the region called the Acting Witan of Mercia who want the region to become independent from the rest of the country. And their <laughs> symbol is a white worm. Madness. Well, yeah. I mean, I totally support them. I think that's great. <laughs> so does Cambridgeshire uh, the witter and the side have a county motto. Yes, corde uno sapiente simus. With one heart, let us be men of understanding. That's very strong. Yeah. That I feel like is alluding to the elephant in the room once more. Uh, okay. Well, uh, Cambridgeshire used to be known as Grantbridgeshire because of the other river that flows through the county, the Granter. Uh, Grantbridgeshire hmm. is what it was called in the Doomsday Book, but over time people more often started calling it Cambridgeshire after the River Cam, another important river there. And this tradition was supercharged by that elephant. The other big thing the county is famous for, the University of Cambridge. Oh, I was talking about Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> he was born in Cambridge. Yeah, uh-huh, he was. And it's actually said that the ghost of Oliver Cromwell is one of the many spooks and spectres you can see in the town where there is supposedly a rather good ghost tour run by the local ghost club. OK, holiday being booked now. <laughs> actually, um, I have visited Oliver Cromwell's house in Ely. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Which is a really great museum house. Um, it's lovely, actually. It? And that's supposedly extremely haunted, not by Cromwell himself, but by other Creeps ghosts. And spooks um, and but I did see the, the cradle he was supposedly rocked in as a baby, which they've got there. And did which... the cradle itself suggest Republican sentiment? <laughs> but presumably there must have been something in it as tiny Ollie lay there screeching. <laughs> well, did it have little bars down the side that he wanted to escape from? <laughs> No. You cannot contain me! <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, Cambridge, of course, is the county town of Cambridgeshire. But it wasn't always a grand seat of learning. All that grand at all, really. After the Romans left, the Venerable Bede described Cambridge as a little ruined city in his great history of the English people. Why is that? Well, I guess because it was simply ruined. Like it was a small Roman settlement and fort and then there was nothing there afterwards. <laughs> now, there is still the Mott of the Mott and Bailey Castle erected in Cambridge by William the Conqueror in 1068. But the town was only granted a town charter by Henry III in the 1120s, around which time the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built there. That's better known in England as the Round Church. If you don't know the Round Church, it's an amazing building. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And then it wasn't until 1209 that a bunch of students from Oxford University fleeing persecution founded Cambridge University. And, as I imagine everybody knows, Cambridge has since gone on to become one of the finest universities in the world. 
Perhaps the defining building of the university is King's College Chapel. Uh, the building of the chapel was begun in 1446 by Henry VI, but only completed, interestingly, by Henry VIII in 1536. Oh, he did something good. He did do something good. Oh, we'll allow it. Okay. Once. <laughs> well, it'll, it Don't get used to it, it Henry. <laughs> <laughs> now, what delayed the building of the King's College Chapel was basically the War of the Roses. And if you've never seen it, my goodness, it is a breathtaking place. Oh, it is. And even if you're not religious, it's well worth watching at Christmas the annual carol service from King's College, yeah. which is always just beautiful, it fantastic is. music. It's and gorgeous. And the atmosphere is just so lovely. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Now, the history of Cambridge University is its whole other topic. Like, books have been written about that that are readily available elsewhere. But, <laughs> The Fenlands and waterways around the town are part of the reason why, to this day, you can travel about the town in little boats known as punts. These are little barges, a little bit like gondolas in Venice. And Cambridge alumni include a dizzying number of very famous people from royalty to the likes of my favourite poet, Lord Byron, the economist John Maynard Keynes, Alan Turing, Stephen Hawking, Isaac Newton, Robert Oppenheimer. I mean, the list goes yeah, on. There was a scene, wasn't there, in the, in the new film about Robert Oppenheimer yep. at Cambridge University. Yeah, there yeah. was, yeah. So, what about the folklore? Okay, well, let's start gently with a little devil tale. Excellent, love a devil tale. Okay, so this one pertains to the Stone Market Cross in the town of March. This stone dates from the 16th century when it said that the people of the town wanted to build a new church there to replace the medieval church of St. Wendreda. Now, just a, a note on the church of St. Wendreda. Have you ever visited this place? I don't think so, but there are. it's, it's a bit like Norwich. There are a lot of churches That's in true. Cambridge, there aren't there? Well, so the church of St. Wendreda is an amazing building. I'll put some photos again on the blog, but like Blythborough Church of the Black Shuck legend, St. Wendredas has this incredible double hammer beam angel mm. roof, which bears over 120 angels carved during the medieval era alongside 19 carved saints. So it's very pretty. But still, the people of the March wanted something befitting the new Protestant era, only as with a rash of our recent episodes whenever they tried to start building the church not a ghost pig or anything less than the devil himself <laughs> appeared to pull down the stones oh dear <laughs> yeah so it's said therefore that the people of the town erected this huge stone cross to drive the devil away which was successful but after that they decided they kind of couldn't be bothered to build the church <laughs> and they just kind of carried on using St Mandredas instead well, we know um, from the legend of St. Botolph in yes. Suffolk that great stone crosses are very effective in driving out demons and devils of all kinds. Definitely. And one of the things that's quite interesting about St. Mandredas is it looks like the same company of family business, actually, that carved the angels for that church also carved those that appear in Blythborough. Really? Yeah. That is so amazing. It's pretty cool, I love it? those carved angels. Yeah, They're me beautiful. too. Some gorgeous churches in it's that whole so region. It's so amazing when you see the ones that have the little bits of paint left yeah. and you can imagine the bright colours that they would have been. We're very lucky that they escaped all of the kind of reformation. And yeah, all the a bit too far for Ollie and his mates to ride out and smash out. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> now, <clears throat> March, the town that, that I was talking about, as you might guess, is situated on the edge of the Cambridgeshire marshlands and these marshes around Cambridgeshire are home to some pretty cool folklore, not least 
the lantern men. Ooh. <laughs> now, in the modern day, the best place to see the lantern men is meant to be Wiccan Fen, which is a 2,000-acre nature reserve looked after by the National Trust. It's home to over 9,000 species and globally famous Cambridge graduate and father of evolutionary theory, Charles Darwin, collected beetles there in the 1820s. It's really pretty, but the lantern men, perhaps... Not so nice. What do they get up to? <laughs> well, it's said that these shadowy shapes are either forms of ghost light or evil spirits. But either way, they look to drown people in the fens. And in quite a sinister turn, because of course there are will-o'-the-wisp legends all over England, legends say that if you wander the fens at night, then not only will you see the lantern men, but these tall, dark shapes carrying flaming lanterns whistle to one another to communicate. Ooh. I know, it's creepy, isn't it? Meeting whistling, now, floating across the fence. Yeah, people aren't sure if the whistling is the lantern men hunting or just the creatures talking to one another, but it's said that if you encounter them, then the best advice is to lie down flat on your front with your lips touching the ground, being sure not to look up until the sound of them passed off. Sounds very wise. I Get know, down right? when you see the lantern men. Yeah. Oh, I love that story. It's quite inspiring. It is, and creepy as all mm. hell. <laughs> now, another interesting folkloric tradition from Cambridgeshire is that of toad men. <laughs> I feel like we might have come across the toad man before. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about mm. them, didn't we, in an early episode, yeah. probably down in the southwest. Now, sadly, these are not giant half-men, half-toad hybrids. Bit kind of, of a shame. Bit of a shame, yeah. <laughs> no, but still, toad men are kind of witches, but their powers are specifically linked to controlling horses. Oh. The idea is that a person does a deal with the devil. To get the party started, you need to catch a male toad. If it's female, for whatever reason, no dice. Then you need to either impale that toad on a thorn bush or stake it to an anthill and wait until the toad's bones have been picked clean. Then, at midnight, on a full moon, you need to toss the bones into a running stream, at which time it's said that all but one specific fork-shaped bone will be washed away. If you then recover that bone and carry it with you, probably in a bag around your belt, then the devil will give you psychic control over horses. So it's a bit of work at the start, but yeah. a lifetime investment. I know, right? In psychic control over horses. I mean... Part of what I thought about when I was reading about this is, like, horses aren't maybe that useful nowadays? No, but I think if you had control over them, that could still come in handy in a variety of situations. Yeah, definitely. Although they can't hold things with their hooves, you know? They don't have the opposable thumbs. Oh, they can thumbs. carry things on their backs. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And one of the curious things about the toad men, actually, is that there were reported cases of them during the 20th century, oh, really? <laughs> including a rash of them in the interwar years between 1918 and 1938. We come across quite a lot of this, don't we? Yep. I, I think a lot of people might think that folk magic had really died out by the 20th century but that is so not Definitely true not there are so many case. reports of it still being used now interestingly talking about that interwar period this was also the time when a legendary cryptid from cambridgeshire was seen quite a few times and this is the shug monkey <laughs> the 
shark monkey. Well, some people say it's a ghost. Some people say it's a demon. But ultimately, the shark monkey legend seems broadly related to similar black shark-like demon dog tales. Now, it's said black shark himself roamed as far as Cambridgeshire. Long legs. But yeah, quite. This particular creature, the shark monkey, primarily stalked the area around the village of West Ratting. That's Ratting with a W. Now, people said that it was like a sheepdog in shape, although with jet black fur and a terrifying monkey's face with staring eyes. <laughs> this makes me wonder when this was, because yeah. sometimes you see medieval drawings of animals, don't you? Where yes. you think, okay, the artist has heard about this animal, yes. but never actually seen one. <laughs> well, one curious sighting dates from the 1950s, <laughs> and the person who saw it said, and I quote, that... The beast was like a bear in size, up to 10 feet in length. So how do you fancy that? A 10-foot demon dog with a monkey's face. I do not fancy that. <laughs> well, going back a lot further, in addition to legendary outlaw Heroin the Wake, who's the subject of my story today, Cambridgeshire is also home to another folkloric hero. This one's called Tom Hickathrift. Have you ever heard of Tom Hickathrift? No. OK, well... This is a really, really old story, dating from before the times of the Norman invasion. But, basically, the story goes that a local labourer, Tom Hickathrift, was an enormous brawny chap, but very much a human being. And though versions of the story vary, Tom is said to have battled with a giant either near the Isle of Ely or the town of Wisbeach, where a giant was said to have roved. Either way, Tom is said to have used a cartwheel attached to its axle tree and then battled the giant with it, after which the victorious Tom was either given the governorship of the Isle of Thanet, which feels a bit random. Because it's in Kent. Yes. Or the giant's lands, which were all around Wisbeach. Huh. A yeah. cartwheel I know. is a very interesting weapon. I know, it is, isn't it? And one really interesting side note to this is in Tilney in Norfolk, there was once a large tomb that has now fallen to pieces dedicated to a man named Hickafrick, rather than Hickathrift, with a stone monument on it which once showed an axle tree and a cartwheel. So that's pretty cool. And to this day, the large stone cross in the churchyard now is known as Hickathrift's candlestick. Lovely. I know. And in Cambridgeshire, there's a whole load of places named after him to this day, including Hickathrift Farm, Hickathrift House, Hickathrift Corner, and a kind of valley in the county, which was once known as Hickathrift's Basin, though that has subsequently been turned into a housing estate. So you can live in Hickathrift's Basin. Yeah, you can. <laughs> now, some people actually think that the shape, the axle tree, and the cartwheel is related to Thor's hammer, and mm. it's a kind of Thor-adjacent legend. Yeah, and of course the cross as well. Yeah, It all definitely. ties in together, doesn't it? It's pretty, pretty interesting. interesting. Now, the landscape of Cambridgeshire, actually, is pretty threaded through with folklore, such as the Gog Magog Hills. What? Yes. Now, if you've listened to our Middlesex episode, then you'll know, because Eleanor told us all about the ancient English myth of Britain's founding by Brutus of Troy, who battled the giant Gog Magog. I didn't know there were Gog Magog Hills, though. Right. Well, 
It was thought for a very long time that New Troy was founded in the Gogmagog Hills in Cambridgeshire. Okay. For a long time, students were banned from going there because it was seen as a kind of sacred monument, which I think is kind of that amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Now, I mean, we know that Brutus did wander around for quite a long time before finally settling on London. We, we know this for fact. Yes, absolutely. Brutus facts. of Troy is an absolute fact. It certainly is on yeah. this podcast. And Geoffrey of Monmouth. Only tells the truth. Only speaks the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but really curiously, excavations in those hills, including at Wandlebury Ring, have found loads of evidence of Bronze Age forts and settlements. So, you know, who's to say? If not Brutus, then somebody else. <laughs> of all of the landscape of Cambridgeshire, though, for me, perhaps the most evocative part is the Isle of Ely, which is where today's tale is largely set. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to that rain. You know, there was once an Englishman who could hide inside the rainfall. I met him in Flanders, fighting in Skaldimariland. A mercenary, he was paid in gold by Robert the Frisian, and that is where we became friends. Even then, he was a legend. His mother, the naked horse rider, Godaifa, was known in all towns, all cities. His father, Leofric of Mercia, elder man of the Huica, was a Northman, like me. But his son, Heriward, was not like Leofric, hammer of Harthacanut, obedient against Godwin of Wessex. He was not like Godiva, the Holy Wife. He was a moon sun, blessed by the Vanir, with blood like boiling rage. Hereward was a younger son. His brother, Alfgir, was his father's golden son. Hereward was not a son of gold or silver. He was a son of iron. A child of rage, always fighting, always hiding. Hereward was banished in his 18th winter to the outer kingdoms of England. 
It was then, in Fife, fighting for Domnor Mac Doncada, when he was dueled with a bear, mighty and fierce, in unarmed combat. Here a world, bear strong, emerged victor. It was then in Cornwall when he stole the Princess Turfida from the castle of Condor. Later, when a tournament fighter in Cambrai, he married Turfida but fathered no sons. His life, bathed in blood, saw Turfida flee from him. She took to a convent where she gave herself to God instead. Heartbroken, Hereward went to war for Robert the Frisian. There I, Morton Lightfoot, became sword brother to Hereward. By night we walked long shadows, danced with our blades, and hid in the woods like owls. We were like the goat's eyes, seeing, plotting, fading to the trees like the waves into the sea. It was then Hereward learned of the death of Elfgar. William the Bastard had invaded England. His men had murdered Elfgar, heir to the lands of Leofric, and placed his head onto a pike in front of his own castle keep. With our blood-stained gold gifted on the death of Baldwin of Flanders, Hereward and I sailed for England. There we found the new lords, feasting in the halls of Leofric, feasting in the halls of Alfgar. We passed through the gates like the night storm. Fifteen Norman knights were in the banqueting hall, laughing, eating, mocking the name of Godiva as a whore. All fell beneath our plates, and from that place of slaughter, riding stolen horses, we went from house to house and raised the allies of the House of Mercia. Our men, our brothers, fled with us to Meadshamsteed, and there, above the ancient Hedda stone, laid by King Paida, son of Penda, Hereward was knighted by the abbot Brand, his uncle, and so he was declared protector of those lands. In those times, the men of William the Bastard rode through Mercia, carving the land into new countries. With such numbers, we could not fight head to head, so we fled back to Flanders. But the reach of the Bastard was long. First, his ally, William de Warren, sent his brother Frederick to kill Hereward. He came to us with an army, but Hereward outwitted him and sent Frederick's body back to the Warren as an offering of peace. So it was that William de Warren came himself, challenging Hereward to battle. On horseback, William de Warren rode to Hereward, who, on foot, took down his bow and notched an arrow and slew de Warren with a single shot. 
for strength, Heriward travelled to Soderop and to the Mead Hall of Svein Estridson, King of the Danes. I think you never met him. He had so many sons. But I knew him well, old enemy of Harald Godwinson and wily grandson of Swain Forkbeard. Estridson was no ally of William the Bastard. From the port of Abendra, we sailed north for the Holy Isle of Ely in the Mercian kingdom of the Gairas. Here, the holy treasures of the monks were taken by Edstridson to Denmark for safekeeping, and the campaign of Hereward began. The abbot Brand at Meadshamstead, uncle to Hereward, had been killed by William's men. In place of the ancient church, the Norman men had built a new abbey, Peterborough, and put in Brand's place a new archbishop. His blood was spilled by Hereward in that place of stone, the cathedral sacked, and all the treasure gifted to Estridson for his protection. These days were days of slaughter and war, but the rising pillars of smoke were as a signal fire, calling allies to our banner. One such ally, Morcar, cousin of Hereward and ousted Earl of Northumbria, escaped from London and joined with us. Then, from the Isle of Ely, deep in the Fenlands, we sheltered with the Bishop Athelwine and planned the battles to come. In one long winter, William the Bastard sent to us two foes who were much afeared. The first, Belsar, the great siege planner, came with masons, woodcutters, and chests of gold. The second, the witch Sikalgaita, spinner of whispers, came with servants of the dark. Together, Belsar and Sikalgaita surrounded our holy isle, lighting night fires and sending blackest, whistling terrors sliding through the still waters of the bogs. We could not hide from these dark powers. And so Hereward and I slipped from Ely and battled the demons in the dark. Creatures without blood or bone, our blades cut through them as scythes through summer wheat, their forms falling into the fen waters as clay. Hundreds such demons we slew, hunting always for Sikalgaita, whose craft was as sharp as ice. But Hereward, the watcher in the dark, had blood on his teeth. He would never surrender, and like snow melting in winter, he found out Sikalgaita hiding in a tower in the marsh. Here he burned her, and her demons and her night whispers could not save her then. Alas for Morcar, who was weak. Belsar, from his fortress, tempted Morcar with gold. First, Belsar bribed the monks of Ely to show him the way to the island. The Normans built a causeway from timber a mile long, 
But the knights, in their armor, riding their horses, sank the ramp into the waters there, and the invasion failed. But Morkar went to Belsar seeking peace. Instead, Morkar was imprisoned. And so Herewood and I fled from the Holy Isle, never to return. For years we hid amongst the bulrushes there, living in the stink of the mire. But Hereward was never one to face battle head on. We were raiders, our allies in the towns and villages, knowing Hereward in disguise. Dressed as a potter, selling wares, he came to them with word of his resistances. They made gifts to him of food and blades and fresh arrows, knowing he would fight for them until his dying day. Yet William would never give up. No longer William the Bastard. He then became William Conqueror, King of England. Outer Mercia was no more, replaced by new shires, Bedford, Huntingdon, Northampton, Cambridge. And to these lands the conqueror sent a giant, Ogor the Breton. For it was known in these days that Hereward was once again in love. Alftruda, widow of Gospatric, was beloved of Hereward, and the two made to have a wedding day at the Abbey of Thornay on the Fenland's edge. Only on that day, when Hereward and Alftruda were joined by God, Ogor the Breton arrived with an army marched from Crowland to the north. And so, instead of a bear, Hereward dueled with Ogre beneath the summer sun. And as they fought, the clouds covering the sky, rain began to fall and lightning forked above them, for the Vanir were watching. Steel clashed steel, and the earth moved below them. But Hereward was older now, with silver in his beard, and the marshland waters in his bones. Ogolda Breton defeated Hereward, and the hero of the marshes was bound in chains. His bones were broken, one eye was lost, and Alftruda, the new bride, was imprisoned with her husband, and the march to London began. But Ogor, for all his might, had little wisdom. He took Heriward and Alftruda south to the edge of the marshes, and that is where we found them out. The battle was one of ugliness. Ogor slew many of our men, and though we struck back with twice the fury, their numbers were too great. Yet I did not fight that day. Instead, as the rain fell, I stepped through the drops and loosed the chains on Hereward's broken form. So the hero made one last escape, he and Alftruda vanishing for a final time. His forces decimated, the resistance was over, the conqueror had won. 
It is said Hereward and Alftruda took shelter in the court of Domnor MacDonchada, his old ally. I will never know, and if I did, I would never tell. For I, Morten Lightfoot, have come home. As you know, Harald Whetstone, iron cannot contain me. Stone cannot stop me. Wood is my friend. The knife I have at your throat is an old blade, but it is sharp. And so I am sorry to disturb you in your sleep and to come here in the dead of night, but I seek the treasure your father took into his safe keeping. The relics of Ely and of the Meacham Steed are no doubt in your treasure vault even now. What a shame for such brightness to be gathering dust. Perhaps then you and I can take a walk to see them. If you don't scream, it will be simpler. We both know there are many more brothers to replace you on the throne. And if all goes well, you may yet rule a long time while those relics and I will vanish from here like owls into the night. So, Eleanor, Heroid the Wake, what do you think? Well, I loved your telling of the story. Literally, the character had a knife at someone's throat. That's a very dramatic <laughs> well, thank and you. great accent, too. Oh, I took a big swing on the accent. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, Bill, I was just thinking, I've, I've been trying to learn some old English yeah. at the moment, and honestly, it's very bad. And I can probably exchange a few polite words in a meat hall. Yes. Um, but I feel there is quite a lot of similarities in the pronunciation of old English. Well, thank um, you. With the, with the accent. I did spend quite a long time practising and listening to Scandinavian. Scandinavian accents and estimations of what old English sounded like. So hopefully it was okay. Yeah, it was a great uh, combination of the two. <laughs> so I've got to ask. Yeah. Why is he called Heroid the Wake? Ah. Because when I was seeing that, I was sort of thinking, is he a modern and socially conscious individual? But that, of course, would be Heroid the Woke. Yes. <laughs> Okay, bad joke, but I appreciate it. Um, so he was called Herowood Wyknan, which uh, means Herowood the Watcher. So his whole thing was he hid and watched and then plotted like an I outlaw. I see. So Wake Waker is literally Watcher. Yeah, that's it. Oh, literally wa- Watcher. And he definitely existed. Oh, really? Yeah, exactly what he did is a bit less clear. For example, we have the 1071 Peterborough version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Mm -hmm. known as the E-Text. And he was still alive and a rebel at that point in time. Then he's in the Doomsday Book, plus he's in the Liber Eliensis, a.k.a. the Book of Ely, and by far the most detailed, the Gesta Hedewardi, which is basically just all about Herowood. That one dates from the 13th century, so long after he's died, meaning his legend has built up all of this kind of extra detail, and all of them contradict one another, so it's a bit of a free-for-all. Did um, Jeffrey get his hands on Heroin? <laughs> I don't think Jeffrey Monmouth actually wrote at all about Heroin. Amazing! Like. It seems right up his street. It does, doesn't it? Now, one thing is for sure is that Heroin 
definitely took part in the insurrection on the Isle of Ely. And his popularity as a folk hero really kicked up into high gear in the 1860s when a novel by Charles Kinsley came out about him. And that's very much inspired by Ivanhoe. And after that, Hereward kind of became a national hero in England feeding into their whole Victorian folk revival we've mentioned quite a few times. The story seems rather gorier than Ivanhoe. <laughs> it does a little bit, but it's also thought that Hereward's real-life escapades in the Fens inspired the tale of Robin Hood. Yes, you can definitely see the similarity, can't you, hiding out with his band of outlaws yes, in nature that's and springing right. out at people. <laughs> definitely. And as we've covered in episodes from Nottinghamshire to Cumberland, lots of parts of England do claim to have their own kind of Robin Hood-adjacent tales. Yes, it's good to have a local hero, isn't it? Any sign of Hereward robbing the rich to pay the poor? I don't think so. It's just like, well, unless you count the Normans as the rich, because well, the whole thing was they came in, kicked out, killed and eliminated all of the old Anglo-Saxon kings and families, mm. apart from those ones that kind of pledged fealty to them. And even then, they were often imprisoned and kept at courts while the new Norman barons, lords and nobles took over their old territory. So it was a real sea change and kind of, I think, symbolic of this moment where the Norman yoke, as it's known, was put over the English mm. people. So Harrow was sort of riding around liberating yes. people. And one of the things that I find so interesting about this whole story is there are records of all of the ancient gold and silver from the various different cathedrals, including Peterborough or the Medeshamstead, as it was known, and Ely, being given to this Danish king, Estridson, and then nobody knows where they went. Mm, might explain a lot of the hordes that yeah. are regularly discovered in Fenland, Bogland and just... In the ground. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Around England. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> All right, should we move on to correspondence? Yes, let's. Okay, well, the first thing to say is that we've had a new review. Oh, that's good. Breaks our review drought. It's been almost a month, I think. Yep, I blame it on the dog star. <laughs> anyway, this one is from Lady Morhwenlin on Apple Podcasts. She wrote Three Ravens Podcast is outstandingly entertaining. This is such an informative and interesting podcast. I love listening to the folklore and history of the different counties of England. Yay, thank you, Lady Morwinlin. And please, if you have five minutes, do hop onto Apple Podcasts or iTunes and write us one too. Please. We know we say it every week <laughs> and we know it's a little bit boring. Yes. But we also know that about a thousand people are downloading each episode, yes. meaning if just half of you wrote us a little review, the difference it would make to us would be mind-boggling. It really, really would. Uh, elsewhere, we've had some lovely messages from lovely people, including Harold, who was in touch quite fortuitously via Facebook. He wrote, Hi, thank you for producing a fantastic podcast. In your episode on witch bottles, you mentioned bent needles and how this ritually killed the needle, allowing it to function on the other side. There are archaeological finds of bent swords in Europe. These were likely destroyed for the same reason. Relevant to England, I believe Flag Fen has yielded some interesting finds. Ah, Flag Fen. Yep. Oh, thank you, Harold, for pointing us in the direction of Flag Fen. I know. It's very fascinating. And yep, loads of bent swords and bent daggers in Flag Fen. And you do wonder if it's because they then become useful in the afterlife. Or not, because mm. they're, they're dead. Well, that's also true. <laughs> now, our Patreon supporter, Alexandra, also messaged to say, ridiculously pleased to hear my name read out with King of Patreon. <laughs> there goes that childlike spirit again. <laughs> King Alexandra, we're here for it. Yeah. <laughs> and she also said, I wanted to 
to let you know that Worcestershire sauce, which my old boyfriend called What's This Here Sauce, <laughs> love that, yeah, also great. comes in a vegan version without the anchovies and it's quite good. Thank Ooh, goodness for that. Lovely, excellent. <laughs> good, we are going to get some. Now, on threads, which we've now also started using, uh, we also heard from Daniel, who's a cave and mine explorer. Oh, how interesting. He messaged us about the Drake Low tunnels you mentioned during our Worcestershire episode. Yes, in case you need a reminder, the Drake Low tunnels were dug during World War II and run for almost 3,000 square feet. And after the military decommissioned them in the 1990s, they've been a hotbed of paranormal activity, yep. including hauntings by ghosts of construction workers who died during collapses in the building of the tunnels. And the, of course, there's the demon that was allegedly yes. loose during a satanic ritual. Oh, God. Anyway, so Daniel messaged to say, I went on the tour earlier this year. Oh, he survived. Well worth it. But they're very strict about not allowing photos on the tour. I'll send you a copy of my notes. It's also near the rock houses of Kinver Edge, so you can make quite a subterranean day out in the area. Sounds perfect. Yeah, it it's does. a little bit spooky. <laughs> I'll get my head torch ready. Okay, excellent. We also heard from some people who voted for us in the British Podcast Awards, Ooh. including Mary, Stuart and Bella, who messaged us too to say, hey, just to say that I love your podcast and have voted for you in the British Podcast Awards. Hope you win. Best of luck. Oh, God, it'll be amazing to win. Please vote for us in the show notes. There's a link. Uh, thank you so much to Mary, Stuart and Bella for your votes. We should also say a huge thank you to our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, including including Sarah, Nigel, Anne, Gary, Donna and Robert on Facebook, Lady Liminal, Janari Ann Boa, PaganBabe1666 and Elena of the Ways on Instagram and Threads and The Haunted Series, Paco B. Garcia and June Brazier on Twitter or X maybe. Mm. I have no idea what Elon Musk is doing. I was actually reading an article about the sort of symbolism of the X oh, yeah. and uh, the writer had linked it to uh, the symbology of Thor's hammer oh, among haven't. other things and of course the X is, is a kiss and it's a cross and so I, I'm interested to see how the whole X thing develops well, from a symbology perspective. Well at the moment it seems like fewer and fewer people are using it so it might be X marks the spot of the grave of a social media titan. Yeah. Anyway, thank you to everyone who is gronking about Three Ravens on social media, yes, whether you. on X or not. <laughs> Please do the same and tell your friends about what we're up to via facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast, Instagram and of course threads via at Three Ravens podcast and Twitter or X via at Three Ravens pod. So then, Eleanor, where are we off to next week? We are headed off to Westmoreland for a tale of witchcraft Ooh, and wildness. That sounds but exciting. But before then, we have our second Magic and Medicines bonus episode on Thursday, which is all about love potions. Ooh, well, that sounds promising. Um, <laughs> and of course, we also have our Patreon-exclusive episode about the extremely haunted Screaming Woods at Pluckley to shiver your timbers, also coming out on Thursday. Yes, and if you'd like exclusive content, including Patreon-only episodes, all of our episodes ad-free, our stories as text versions, and the Three Ravens newsletter, then do please sign up for either $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Oh, and don't forget about the Three Ravens Film Club. Let's all watch You Won't Be Alone and get properly freaked out. I'm so excited! <laughs> In the meantime, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember... Don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Michael Swanton, Stephen Knight and Thomas H. Olgren for their book, Robin Hood and Other Outlaw Tales. Charles Kingsley for his book, Heroin, The Last of the English. And Christine Miller from SpookyIsles.com. 
Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such leemen, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.